There's a, an, an air of vulnerability that comes off you. Why is that? Say more about that. Say more about it. Is that one of your fucking psychotherapist questions? <laughs> So at this time last week, producer Killian and I were sitting outside the home of Tommy Tiernan in Galway. And I remember we were sitting wondering not only how would that chat go, but also how would the podcast go? How would it be received? And a week later, we're sitting here alongside one another in the same car, having spent a large part of the week on the top of the Irish podcast chart Mm. so thank you all for listening and subscribing in such big numbers but also for the messages I've received a load of messages particularly on Instagram with people sharing their views and their comments on the first chat but we received so many messages that we figured we'd set up an email account so if you have thoughts or comments on this podcast series or actually if you've got suggestions for future guests I would love to hear them so send your thoughts by email to episode at secondcaptains.com so welcome to episode. I am sitting here alongside Killian, as always. Richie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. We are in Blanchardstown. Why? We have stopped for a little chat just around the corner from the home of our second guest, Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan. Katrina is someone who might not be known to many people, but this year she released her memoir. It's called Poor. It's just received two nominations in the Irish Book Awards. She is not only an author, she's an academic, a researcher, she's an activist, but her book contains a very candid and honest account of her childhood growing up in what she described as extreme poverty and neglect and all the trauma that comes with that living in a household where both of her parents were heroin addicts. Yeah, it's an amazing book, Richie. And as you say, she is very honest and unflinching about both the people around her and the structures around her that failed her as a child. But I think what probably sets the book apart is she's actually very empathetic about why those people who did fail her were kind of in that position in the first place. Yeah, and I think it's probably important to say that given some of the traumas that she did write about in the book, particularly from her childhood, there's a good possibility that some of the chat we're about to have with her may feature at times some heavy themes. But Katrina's someone I've known personally for years. I haven't actually had the chance to sit down and speak to her properly since the book came out. So I'm dying to find out not only how the process went for her of writing the book, but how does she feel the book has impacted not only other people, but herself. Actually, before we get to it, could you just give us a minute to tell you that this podcast series is made possible by Now. Like this podcast, Now is about much more than just sport. But if football is one of your things, let me tell you about the two sports packages you can choose from. You can go for the Now Sports membership where you get Sky Sports or the Now Sports Extra membership where you'll get TNT Sports and Premier Sports. Now, I personally recommend that one because the Sports Extra membership is where you will find Oh McDevitt of the second captain's studios. So whether it's for a day or a month, or indeed just to catch up on Owen McDevitt, now has the membership for you. And Killian, I don't need to tell you, it's a huge derby on this week. Man U v Man City on Sunday the 29th of October. As a Man United fan, I've learned there can only be more pain ahead. Yes, you Man U fans know things haven't started particularly well for you. Man City fans, the rest of us are wondering, is this a season where we'll actually get Mm. a genuine title race? We'll wait and see. Okay, let's head over and speak to today's guest. That's Sandy. Is this the third dog? The second one. We just caught her, yeah. There was Buddy. Yeah, Buddy's in there. And that's Sandy. She's like your Joey. Yeah, Joey. Go. She's a cabbage off. Cockapoo. Cockapoo. Dr. Katrina, you're very welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. How do I introduce you? Oh, just Katrina would be good. 
I always feel weird when people say doctor. Um, yeah. Why? I don't know. I kind of think it's a little bit. Am I allowed to swear? You can swear as much as you like. <laughs> Up your own ass. Uh, obviously, I'm proud of being a doctor, but I just, just feel a bit, a little bit weird about it. Now, I do use it in certain circumstances, especially when I'm sending a strongly worded email. Um, <laughs> it helps. It helps then. But yeah, Katrina. And you, there's a fear that you, you come across as a little bit up your own arse yeah. if you acknowledge your own achievements. Yeah, a little bit. You know, I think as well being like, obviously I grew up in the UK, but I'm Irish family. Is this always this thing about like not blowing your own trumpet too yeah, much? Yeah. So yeah, but Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan, psychologist, memoirist and generally <laughs> deadly woman would be... A good introduction. That'll do. We first met each other several years ago. We know a lot more about one another now because we've both written books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've put it all out there in the pages. Um, Around about 18 months ago, you sent me this message. I wrote some really shit stuff last week and I thought, what the hell am I doing this for? Mm. Immediately I could relate. But what's your answer to your own question today? Like, why did you write that book? I think firstly, to be honest, because I was asked to write the book. So I had had a little bit of media around my story and I was approached by Penguin and they said, wow, you're a great writer and would you write your story? Um, I think there's always been a drive in me to be heard. Okay. Even as a little child in extreme poverty, I always felt like no one heard me and saw me and what I was going through. And so I think there was also a desire to have acknowledgement for the things that I'd been through. But ultimately, the decision to tell my story was because I, well, maybe two reasons. The first one is I was really hopeful that people could learn about the impact of poverty and how it's far reaching and impacts everything in your life. And when I say people, I mean people in positions of power generally Mm. privileged people and then also I just had this feeling like I do feel really privileged to have not only survived my life but thrived and I feel like having grown up in poverty and understanding it I'm, I'm in a privileged position that I can maybe help somebody else so I have always have this idea that maybe there's a girl somewhere who just doesn't think she's worth anything because the world's told her that and like maybe you know, she hears my story and thinks, actually, that's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. So there were a the couple of reasons why. So was it an instant decision? Yes, I'll do this. Or was there a phase where you were pondering the pros and cons? Oh, no, it took me six months to decide because, I, you know, you're telling, you're telling on your family. So like I had to consider my children, my husband, but also my siblings and and my parents, even though they're dead. Like I had to think about, you know, what would the cost be to them and me and doing this? And so it took me about six months of like really kind of weighing up the pros and cons of doing it. And in the long run, I just felt like the privilege that I have, that it was the right thing to tell my story even if there may be costs to myself or other people. And there have been costs. You know, it's not gone. I haven't gone through this process without 
um, some loss and some fear and um, some pain. But in the long run, I think the response has been so powerful that it's been worth it. When you speak about your life, you give a lot of people, I'd imagine, an insight into a world that for many people they're completely unaware of. Mm. And you've often used the word the underclass to describe your upbringing. We weren't working class, we were the underclass. Explain the difference for listeners. So I was, when I do talks, I, I say, I grew up in a community where everybody was poor. Okay. So, and there were some of us who were poor, poor, and some of us who were rich, poor. And so when I say rich, poor, I'm talking about like the working classes. And generally the working classes were the people who were working in like service jobs. So they may have had an alcoholic in the house, the dad, he was maybe working as a builder or the man was a waitress or a cleaner. But generally working class means that you're, there's a job there somewhere in the house. It might not be a career, but it's a job. Okay. Mm. And they're very respectable jobs, but at the end of the day that they're most times service jobs. And then the underclass or the poor, poor are the social welfare class, like me and my family, whereby literally we were, our goal in life was to be on social welfare. And, um, you know, we were, we were the ones who would have robbed the rich poor's lawnmowers or casterios, usually went out of your own community to do stuff like that. But the poor poor were basically criminal class, underclass, working class, um, were, had jobs. And so to contextualize that, there wasn't choice in that. Mm. Okay. So I was an underclass woman and girl um, who my goal in life was to get the social welfare and get a council flat. Okay. That was, but I, it wasn't like I was like looking over the other side of the country and go, or the world and going, now I could be a professor or I could be a teacher or a nurse, but actually, no, I'm not going to choose that. I'm choosing this. Like everybody I knew was the same. So everybody I knew, my family was exactly the same. Uh, to be fair, now my brother wants to get a job and we all thought it was weird because he wants to get a job at the end of the day because this is what you just did. And a lot of people like me did this, you know, and um, your family's generally ravaged by addiction or mental health difficulties. My dad was in prison. And so, yeah, underclass. Now, my therapist hates me using the term underclass. Why? Because she, I don't know, I think she's uncomfortable with it. Like a lot of people are, like especially middle-class people, or working class people, they're, they're uncomfortable with me saying I'm from the underclass. But the truth is this exists. There are people who are mainly, who spend their life on social welfare, who don't have any opportunities, have terrible experiences in school and don't really get a chance to flourish in the same way as everybody else. And, but some people are really uncomfortable. Is it because it forces them to acknowledge the existence of those conditions that we we know people live in yeah a hundred percent i also think so um yeah it definitely forces people to acknowledge their privilege i think that's the issue is because my story particularly demonstrates that you can actually help people to flourish and that we don't do enough to do that and so i think people are uncomfortable with the existence of the underclass um and they're uncomfortable maybe with the fact that they don't do enough to make it fairer for people and for kids like me. Definitely. There's one word I used to, it used to jar with me a little bit when any, whenever I would talk about my book, people would ask me, was it cathartic in any way? And mm. I was like, avoid this, like a cliche, avoid this word. And 
I'm a few years on from the process now and like I wrote some of my most personal difficult mm. dark stuff that I'd been through as a as a kid I wrote about being sexually abused and the process I went through when I first put it on the page it was horrendous mm. I was full of tears and then I had the process you're probably familiar with this where you have to send it to somebody else mm-hmm. And like any other chapter in the book, on the one hand, you're waiting for a critique on, is it good writing? Mm. Is this interesting? Does it belong in this chapter? Mm. But also there's this thing of, what's that person now going to think of me? Oh, yeah. Like that was the bit that I I can't put that into words, but I know at some level you must have experienced that. A hundred percent. It's yeah. Oh, so when I was sexually abused as well, and I write about it, mm. I was raped as a child. And mm. I, one of the one of the things about writing about that particular incident was, I wanted to use the word rape for me as a child, and the conversation with the editor was, should we use that word? And I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you take it out, because it's the truth, and. Um, I think, you know, one in four adults in this country have experienced abuse and one in five worldwide, or I think it's one in 4.7 worldwide. So this is not something that we should hide away from or have to dress up in language that is more palatable because the truth is it's horrific what happens. And I wanted to, people to actually experience some of the horror of that in my story which um so that was tough the tough part about letting it go like you so the the insecurity about is it any good so like will Mm -hmm. people like me like just pure human will they like me after this Mm. I had this idea though um that particularly in my job so I work in in as an academic in Maynooth University and a lot of academics come from very privileged backgrounds okay they're very privileged And I had this imaginary audience of them and how they would be with me once they knew I was a victim, you know, and that was very hard for me to carry and process until the book came out. It was, and it wasn't real. Like there was no evidence for that, that they were going to treat me any differently. I just had this idea that that was, I was going to be seen differently or seen as a victim. And I am a victim, but you know, sometimes being a victim of something and being treated that way or is seen as being tarnished in some way, that was all in my mind around that particular side of it. In terms of being cathartic, I don't know. I get a bit jarred by that as well mm. because yeah, it's just a bit weird. Yeah, like I'm a butterfly or, you know, I was a caterpillar. Now I'm all of a sudden flying after writing the book. There's been this transformation. The one thing that I did really experience though is as a child, like I had a lot of love and compassion for myself as a small child. And I felt that as I was writing the book. But then as I wrote about myself as a teenage girl, all of a sudden I I stood into this 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 blaming kind of language about myself as if like as soon as I turned 13 I was no longer a victim of poverty and abuse and I was this bad kid who was making bad choices and with the editor that I worked with when I was sending her there was a moment where she said to me like I'm not going to allow you to talk about yourself like that and I was taken aback by that and because you know it's my story it's me she said I don't know if you can see but you're you're really hard on teenage Katrina um and so it really made me kind of like reflect on how I viewed myself 
and and how I view actually people in general who go from being really hurt as kids to being like reacting to that in teenage years and my reaction was delinquency it was crazy like I was angry I was robbing I was getting involved and got pregnant at 15 but so that was really a a game changer in terms of like aligning my story all the way through and seeing the consequences of my childhood in my teenage years and the work that I did with the editor really helped that so you developed a bit more compassion for teenage you oh yeah like I actually look at 15 year old me now like I I always had a sense of like seven-year-old me like being hurt and I think my whole life has been a journey back to her like trying to reach her and soothe her and so I always have you know I have always seen that and seen the harm that was done and been had a compassionate eye on myself then but now I see 15 year old me you know squatting in a flat pregnant with a partner who's no good who's never gonna love me the way I need or deserve because he's incapable himself and I feel so much love and compassion for her as well and I didn't see that before I wrote the book I didn't feel that I actually felt a bit annoyed at myself and disappointed like I let myself down I should have done better but that's what you're taught you see I was taught that in school like I was taught that by everybody that you can change your own life that you should make better choices, that in school you should have studied harder. But I, I, I absolutely couldn't. With all the things that were going on inside of me and the community that I came from, it was very hard to thrive, very, very hard. So, yeah, that was a big lesson. It was a big lesson and it was an important one for me. It was one of the most transformational, actually forgiving my, my teenage self and aligning that girl with the little girl who was really let down. Even that phrase, the, the little girl who was really let down, mm. the phrase is, is doing a lot of work. Yeah. Like, when I read the section of the book, when you, you talked about the exchange with your mum after you've left the house where the character you called Bob was, um, and you told her you'd been raped. Mm. Like I, I work in circles where I'm regularly and constantly encountering people who've been through really horrendous things Mm. but when I read that Mm. it floored me yeah it 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 floored me you 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 told your mum you'd been raped by Mm. Bob and and her response was she said I did it to me too yeah honestly I think there are moments that are imprinted on a child's life memories you know, that are, and oftentimes they can be really bad ones. Sometimes they're really good ones as well, like happy birthdays or whatever. But that particular, because I did the right thing. I know. I did the right thing as a little girl. I asked the person who was supposed to look after me for help and she couldn't help me. Um, I don't, and for years, I couldn't forgive her for that. Like for years, I couldn't forgive my mum for that. And like the the bits that are not in the story in my book are the therapy sessions that I had with my mum. And we talked about it. The times that, like there's a part of me that really believes that my mum couldn't heal herself. So when she used to get so battle clean, all of what she'd done would come flooding in. And I don't think she could actually stay in this world with the knowledge 
of how much she'd harmed her children, me with that particular thing, but lots of other things with all of my siblings. And so, yeah, that, that imprinted on me. It broke a trust in the world it, for a long time. And um, yeah, when I wrote about, like I cried so hard. And what was really good about actually writing about it because I feel really protective of my mom. Like mm. I, I love her. Like I, I, I loved her and I love her now. And so like one of the things that I really didn't want was her to be a villain in my story. And I think I, I talk about her. I think people who've read about my mom, they understand why she was the way she was as well. And so there's a love for her too, which is really nice. But when I was writing that piece and I was in therapy, it was a really good way for me to kind of get into that again. And um, because I'd been in therapy for a good while and she knew my story, she was able to kind of help me contextualize what my mom was going through at that time. Like my mom had been used by men her whole life. She'd been raped, she was a prostitute. She had no power at all. And so I think her response to me was, this is it. This is what happens to us. This is what happens to girls like us. And that's really sad. But it's, I think it was her reality. Um, and that was, yeah, that was a probably one of them spotlight moments in my life that it's taken a long time to heal from. Because I do, I do think a lot of us operate under the fantasy or the illusion that when vulnerable children speak up to an adult, mm. that the cavalry will arrive mm. um, and that the bad guys will be apprehended and the vulnerable people will be just wrapped in protection and safety yeah. and the healing will begin. That's not what happens. Even in the case of, so I was taken into care then mm. and um, I was examined medically and I got my um, records back and there was some evidence of um, something having happened to me. Um, I had cystitis or something that a small child shouldn't really have a girl of my age. And like I was sent back to that house. That's a part like I'm still quite angry about that, that um, I was sent back to a home where abuse was happening and very early and where it continued. So like not only did my mom let me down, but also I felt the state let me down in terms of not protecting me. So I went, went, into, went into care. It was, I loved it. It was so safe there. I got food. I love food. We never ate. Like, so I had mm. food every day. And then I had um, someone reading me a story at night, fresh clothes. It was lovely. And then all of a sudden we were given back to my mom and it continued. And so the loss of trust was not just with my mom, it was with the system at large. And so, yeah, it's taken a long time for me to grow and recover from that. And there's still a, a part of me that feels more let down by that, them, the privileged people, the social workers or policemen and people that were dealing with my family than actually with my own parents. Because your parents were dealing with their own traumas, their own addictions. Mm. You would hope in scenarios like that, that the system, the care system or whatever, the justice system, the yeah. wider family system will kick in. And, and it didn't. It didn't. No, it didn't. And so, you know, as a young kid, like you have a very immature way of seeing the world. Okay. So, you know, 
Shelley's mom next door makes her soup and brushes her hair and dresses her lovely. My mom does none of that. So my mom so what's wrong with my mom? My mom, is it me? Is something wrong with me? And then, you know, you, you're taught to, you know, that you're supposed to trust the guards and trust the social workers and the teachers. And then all of a sudden you have the police kicking your door in and holding your mum's underwear up in front of you and saying, look at the state of your, your mother. And so you've, you've all this kind of like mistreatment from very young. Then you're supposed to grow up into this like trusting together adult that doesn't have any issues. And so like you know, the defiance with authority 100% came from some of the experiences I had. It wasn't actually because I was like a bad person or that my family was a mess or fucked up. It was because I actually experienced a lot of toxic behavior that came from the people in power within my system. Where are you with all that now? Mm. What's your relationship with figures of authority with the people who for so long would have represented or symbolized people who have failed you? So a lot, so like along, I understand actually. So if we talk about the guards, for example, like guards are not really trained around socioeconomic disadvantage and what that looks like in poverty. Like you, actually, there was a policeman who emailed me, who arrested me three times. When did he email you? He emailed me a few months ago after he read my story in The Guardian. I'll never forget him because he was so good looking. Uh, it was beautiful and all my friends would be like oh you love him but he actually I never forget he um I was working in a sausage factory frozen sausage factory I was 14 I was bagging boxing 24 frozen sausages and the police came in and arrested me and I lost my job right and they arrested me they said that I went into the local shop put on a pair of red shoes and ran out I didn't okay I did I swear I didn't and I got slagged for it for years where's your red shoes um, but this policeman particularly was, he tried to get me to like, you know, grass on my friends, my brothers. He was like trying to like, he was trying to get me to tell on people, right? And um, I wasn't having any of it. Like he didn't talk to the police at all, but he was cute. Anyway, um, I was like 15 or whatever. He, and then he emailed me and he said, he said, sorry in the email. Wow. He said, I was an 18 year old going into the police force with no awareness of poverty or criminality. And he said, and I, I knew that you, you're a good kid. You had potential, but I didn't know you had this in you, what you've done. And I'm sorry. And, uh, I was like, he's still cute. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I, I wrote back, um, thank you so much for acknowledging, acknowledging that. I said, I, I lost my job. Over you arrested me over the red shoes. And he said, I don't remember. He said he didn't remember that, which is fine. But um, he acknowledged the fact that at 18, he had no understanding of poverty and how that comes out in adolescence, you know, who are hanging around on street corners. I thought that was a wonderful thing for him to do, to reach out to me. He ended up being a sergeant um, and he's retired now. But that was beautiful. But I do know, so my relationship with, I've tried to understand why, why there are people in positions of authority, why they choose to treat people who are poor badly. And honestly, when I look at the guards, for example, like like they do six weeks in Templemore. That is all about their physicality. Then they're, they're sent out on the street. And honestly, 
you're they're sent out on the street. Say they're sent out on, into Summerhill, Dublin One, where I lived. Richie, you you know they're gonna get told to fuck off. They're gonna get spat at because there's a whole history of authority issues, and so they actually develop their opinions of people in poverty based on that experience rather than a good education. And so, like how I navigate that is, I do have an understanding. So like I, I am calling like part of my work is to actually ensure that people who are working with people in poverty or trauma or minority groups, they need a proper education to be able to deal with people. They need to understand where behavior comes from. Um, and similar with teachers, like teachers don't get any training. There's no formal training in initial teacher education on, um, on poverty and what that looks like. And so you're, they'd have to do a placement in a desk school a disadvantaged school. But like, if you can imagine, there's a groin here from Sligo who went to a lovely school, lovely girls' school where they all stood up and prayed every morning. Everyone did as they were told. And then she goes and she's doing a year of initial teacher education. And then she's thrown into a school in Ballymun. Big class sizes, kids who were like me, can't sit still, telling the teacher to fuck off. That reinforces maybe a stereotypical view that may have existed. And so like my, my work now is to use my privilege to try to converse, have conversations like this, try to inform policy where I can talk to teachers, like fundamentally two teachers saved my life. Mm. So it wasn't all bad. And so I have the privilege of being able to demonstrate what you can do to improve a child's life and then what you can't do. So I'm using that. I suppose I'm using my experience. So the anger is not there anymore. Don't get me wrong though. If I'm driving along and there's a guard behind me, I still shit myself. I still think, have I got my insurance? Is my tax in the window? I don't know if everyone feels like that, but I definitely still have a bit of fear in me around it. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, so I'm trying to use what I know in a positive way. There's a term, one good adult. Mm. And I hear it a lot in terms of child welfare or adolescent development. And it's I often do when I speak to teenagers, kind of invite them to tease out who is it in their lives that they have that they may talk to if the mm. situation arose. Your story really illustrates the value of that for young people and mm. the impact and the power that we as adults have in every interaction we have with youngsters. Mm. Talk a little bit about those two teachers. You just said they saved your life. Yeah, so... Like, I always imagine that when you're born, you have this, like, dark space inside of you. It's your parents' job to put a couple of lights in there, be it one light if you've one parent or two. And them lights are, they go there because there's love, consistency, food, warmth, discipline. And them lights will guide you in life. Like, they they show the way for you. Like, in my case, like, when I started primary school, there was still a dark space inside of me. I had no light. But actually, teachers really can place a light in a child so like my first ever teacher was miss arkinson she was irish as well and so she the first day she was like uh katrina welcome little irish girl and she said my name correctly because the brits can't say it correctly they all say catriona which is really fucking annoying and um (laughs) so i would be like uh so but i was already suspicious of her, of any adult so I didn't like all run into her arms but the two things she did for me that really changed my life was the first one is she always expected me to be able to achieve she always expected me to be able to achieve so she always asked me to do jobs and most of the time so she say, Katrina would you go over here she had a lovely Tyrone lilt she would you go out there and take this town to Mr whoever and I'd take the thing and I'd run out of school out onto the playground I wouldn't do the job 
And 90% of the time I wouldn't, but she never stopped asking me. She never stopped believing that I could perform the same as everybody else. Okay. And like, I think when you have someone in your life like that, irrespective of what you do, that expectation seeps in the belief they have in your capability because all kids are capable. All kids are capable of sitting still. All kids are capable. We just have to find a route in. And sometimes what they're going through might actually stop them from doing it. But her expectation of me became this light that went from her to me. So I remember I used to lie in bed and think, like, I'd be really scared because there was murder in the house. And I'd be lying there, like, in my head, pulling, looking for someone to think cared. And, like, she would come to mind. So, like, she lived on way beyond the classroom, her care for me and her expectation. But also she she taught me to wash myself. Mm. She brought fresh clothes in for me every day. She gave me a bun in the morning. Like I used to go to breakfast for her class long way past I left her classroom. So me and my brother, she'd always have breakfast for us. There was never any shame in. So like that teacher like was the first light that was lit in me and it lasted forever, way beyond. Like it's still there now. You know, I still remember that she cared. And when you think that nobody cares, having somebody you know cares makes a difference. Um, and then there was Mr. Pickering. When I was that wild teenager who was like, fuck you, don't even say anything to me. This teacher found a way to communicate with me uh, where I would listen. Like he told me his actual, his life story. I thought teachers were just like assholes, the majority of them, especially in secondary school. Mm. They were just like, dickheads who wants to tell you what to do all the time you know disciplinarians and but this teacher particularly remember he, he told me that he was uh, he left school when he was 15 and he he went to work in the mines in up in the north of england and it was the first time i ever thought oh, god a teacher's actually a human and then he said he went back to study english but i remember he um he came to my house and parent teacher meeting evening and I was always terrified when anyone knocked the door because it meant I was in trouble and my dad would go mad. But he, he said to my dad, I was listening behind the door, he said, um, I was hoping to meet you, Mr. O'Sullivan, tonight. Uh, and my dad like mumbled an apology and Mr. Pickering said to him, um, I just wanted to tell you that your daughter's amazing. She's so talented. Wow. And I think you should do more to help her. And wow. my dad wasn't like this shameless character. Like he was embarrassed and he said he'd try and do better. And, but behind the door, I grew an inch like some man who didn't have to went to bat for me with my own, my family. And that actual conversation actually didn't come to light like that impact until I was sitting in an interview for Trinity College at the age of 23. So like while I thought I was bad at everything, I knew I was good at English because Mr. Pickering told me so. And he like his belief in me and the way he went to bat for me was like, well, I'm bad at this and bad at this, but I know I'm good at this because he, he went to bat for me. So like I ended up miraculously, you know, being a Trinity college student at, tw uh, at the age of 23. But when I was sitting in the interview, I knew I was failing the interviews, three academics and me, this commoner, <laughs> this chavy girl, fake tan, hoops, and they're asking me questions. I've no clue. And then the Ray said, this guy said, have you, do you read? Do you know any books? And I knew then, Miss Pickering, wow. I'm going to cry a little bit here, but like of mice and men, John Steinbeck, I know this. 
and I was able to describe theories and things that I'd learned in English because he told me I was good at something. And so one of the messages I always try to give to teachers is some, like Mr. Pickering never saw that I went to Trinity. Like I left school at 15 and pregnant and he died a year or two after that. But so sometimes what we give a kid, we might never see the response that we want. So you can invest everything and the child can still say, fuck you, I'm leaving. I'm not doing it. I don't care. But like the light lives on forever. And his light came to light when I was 23 and actually helped me change my life in a totally different situation. I could pick up the emotion in that story Mm. as you were telling it. And I know from my own experience, when you're trying to talk about the issues you've written out in a book or you've shared openly stuff you've gone through, you're going to be swamped with responses from people. Mm. And when you be open about something, it kind of invites or gives others permission to be open with you. Mm. How have you managed that bit? Because I'd imagine there's lots and lots of messages you've received where people have let you in on their lives, their troubles, their difficulties. Mm. I actually, <laughs> I really like the messages. And I say thank you um, to everybody who sends me a message. I always respond. Um, if people share deep things, like I would definitely say, I hope you're getting support and, you know, I'd recommend therapy if somebody is really struggling with something. A lot of the messages are, it's so wonderful to be seen and for someone to know me the way you know me. So, and I just say thank you to that. Um, you know, when I said about like the seven-year-old girl that was let down, it actually has been very healing for her in terms of like realizing that she's not alone, but also that the world is not a bad place because I think that's something that I would have grown up thinking that the world isn't a safe place. And like the response to my book and the messages and just the kindness of the world has been phenomenal. Like I, I, it's been like a, a very soothing experience for, for little Katrina who's still sometimes sitting there going, is it safe to come out? Um, so that's been fantastic. And, you know, I, I don't have the answers for everybody. Like uh, someone wrote to me yesterday and said, uh, can you help me write a book? I was like, no, <laughs> I can't even write myself. I can't help myself, you know, but I, you know, there's loads of places, try creative writing course. You know, there's loads of things that I don't have any um, specialism in or I don't know, but I definitely will always say thank you. And if there's someone struggling, you know, I would say, please, I hope you're getting some support and help with that. And thank you so much for feeling like you could share that with me because it is a privilege to have somebody share their story with you. And I do actually feel pretty strong in myself, like the vulnerability. I don't feel completely overwhelmed by anything. Um, And if I do, I just take some time back and do the things I know that are really safe and supportive for myself. Well, thanks so much for joining me for this chat and for sharing your story so openly. And you know what? I'm sitting here in your home and the more you talk about your childhood the more I'm aware that the home we're in now is so far from the home you grew up in and the various homes you've had. And I think of all your achievements that you have a home like this is probably the thing you've, you've, you've earned the most or you deserve the most or, or the thing that I'm most grateful that you have. So, oh, thank I, you. I really, really wish you well. Thanks, Thanks Doctor. Richie. Thank you.
Um, I'll have to come over and get a sea swim with you because I know you do that all the time. I love it. I know you do that each week. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, we go out to Port Manor, but I love the forty foot. Do you fancy this Sunday morning? Yeah, the forty foot. Yeah, I love it. Great. Right. So we have pulled in around the corner from Katrina's house. To be honest, that conversation I had with Katrina is is probably the most extreme example of you know you hear the phrase you've no idea what the person in front of you has been through we've no mm-hmm. real understanding of the journey each of us have been on like I've known Katrina six or seven years I had no knowledge of any of that when I first met her and for her to now be in a place where she can sit down with you and speak about it with like such clarity and eloquence it's kind of crazy yeah and that she has the platform to do so like remember the comment she made at the start like she is visible, she is seen, and she's now being heard in the way that I assume the child version of Katrina would never, ever have imagined possible. Completely. So before we go, um, I want to tell you first that this entire series of episode is brought to you by Now. And we're delighted, we're honestly really happy to have them on board because, as I said at the start, their sports memberships are definitely worth a look. Huge games coming up over the next couple of months. They've got Man City v Liverpool, Newcastle v Man U and United Strip to Anfield. The next big one up is the Manchester Derby. That's on the 29th of October. So if that's your thing, stream Man U v Man City with a Now sports membership. Okay, I want to finish up by saying a huge thanks once again to Dr. Katrina O'Sullivan for being so open, so sound, so inspiring, so bloody amazing. Thanks to my producer. That's you, Killian. Thanks, Richie. Episode is a second captain's podcast and is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Get your emails into episode at secondcaptains.com and we'll speak to you next week. Never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain. Second captain, first captain, whatever.